The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 19. Uh, this scripture has been our text for the first six messages of our study of the Holy Spirit in our series entitled, The Spirit of Christ. And this is the seventh message, and yet we find ourselves uh, only about the midpoint of our dive into the Bible doctrine of pneumatology, if you want to make note of that. Um, as I said in previous sermons, there is no lack of information about the Holy Spirit. And so as we go through Scripture, we find much for us to discuss, to talk about Him. Uh, I've talked to you maybe just a few weeks ago. We were mentioning, I was mentioning systematic theologies, and I have several of those in my office. All of them have sections on pneumatology, and each, in each case, the doctrine is found under the section of theology. Now, you might think, well, a systematic theology, that would be just the only topic that it has. But actually, the second division of them are usually anthropology, which is the study of man. Now, theology, of course, is the study of God. Pneumatology, uh, the study of the Holy Spirit, is under the topic heading of theology, the study of God. Uh, John L. Dagg, a 19th century Baptist theologian, in his systematic theology places the Holy Spirit under the heading, the duty of living and walking in the Spirit. As we were reading, reading just a moment ago in 1 John, that, that, that title that John L. Dagg, Dagg just flashed through my mind is, let me just turn over there and look at it again. In, in uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse number 6, he that, he that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. So Dag titles his section on the Holy Spirit, the duty of living and walking in the Holy Spirit. And interestingly, Thomas Paul Simmons uh, begins his section on the Holy Spirit by quoting from Emory Bancroft's book, Elemental Theology, in which he says, There is much confusion and error current in this day concerning the personality, operations, and manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Conscientious but misguided scholars have held wrong views concerning this doctrine. It is vital to the faith of every Christian, that its scriptural teaching be seen in its true light and held in its right proportions. Now, I understand, as I mentioned, names of theologians such as these, they may, they may not mean very much to you, but I can assure you of this, uh, concerning the faith, these people are the best of the very best. And I believe that Bancroft well defines uh, our purpose in the study, which is to show that the Holy Spirit is vital to our faith. And really, understanding Him is the vitality of our faith itself. And so, as these systematic, systematic uh, theologies affirm, the most important truth that we learn about the Holy Spirit is that He is God. And since He is God, we really don't need any arguments about how critical He is. Confusion about the Holy Spirit is evidenced in these text verses that we have in Acts chapter 19. Now, I explained that there are many controversies that arise from this portion of Scripture. Uh, we're not touching those. We're just looking at one, and that is knowing about and understanding the Holy Spirit's work. 
Now here in the 19th chapter, the Apostle Paul returned to Ephesus to continue his instruction of the church. He came to check on their progress, to ground them more in the truth, and to encourage them in their faith. And upon his arrival, he met a few believers that were ignorant of the Christian ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, the verse that we are concerned with is verse number 2. We'll not read the surrounding, but in verse number 2, Paul asked them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? Now, we might understand that better by phrasing it, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they replied, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And if you remember, we deciphered that answer by consulting the American Standard Version, which I think is a little bit better, which says, Nay, we did not so much as hear whether the Holy Spirit was given. And I think that accurately describes the dilemma. Now, it appears that they are saved. They are called believers. They would have received the Holy Spirit as all believers do. We all have the Spirit living within us. But the problem with these disciples is defective understanding, a defective knowledge of the Christian faith. Perhaps they came to Christ or came to the faith by hearing the word from another disciple uh, who was likewise perhaps deficient in his faith. And that's a, a kind of a good warning for us to be careful about the information that we receive, that we affirm it as, it as being the true doctrine of Christ. And I'm not saying who these uh, people heard the word from were deceivers, but I'm saying that goes around so much today that we can't just blanketly accept what people say and say, this is the doctrine of Christ. This is a good understanding. I haven't heard that before. No, you check everything that you hear by the Word of God. You, you always check that out. So it appears that these men had received the baptism of John, but they probably approached John very early in his ministry so that they didn't realize that the Christ that he preached, the one that he was preparing the people for, had come and that the Holy Spirit was given. Again, perhaps their early disciples, John was in the wilderness, he is the forerunner of Christ, but they have not heard about what happened later of the baptism of Christ, the ministry of Christ, and then the promise that he gave upon his death that the Holy Spirit would come. Now really, honestly, we don't know the answer to all these questions. I've never read after anybody who definitively says, I know exactly what's going on in this passage. There are some things that we can deduce from it, but I'm not sure that we know all there is to know here. But there is confusion. That much is evident. There is confusion. The, these might have been similar to Old Testament believers who believed in the Christ who was to come, but they were cut off from his arrival and ministry. So they're ignorant of the work. And so Paul took them aside to instruct them about the Christ who came and the promise that he gave to his people that they would have the power of the Holy Spirit in them. So it could be evidence that these disciples were, just like others, saved prior to the coming of Christ. Well, we look at this, and uh, they may be people still waiting on the Christ to come. They don't know about the Holy Spirit. They're unaware then, and this is where the problem comes in. They're unaware of the power that is available to them to live for Christ by the Spirit's presence. Now, this is the reason, then, that we want to know more about the Holy Spirit. We must understand what he does, how he works, how he lives in us every day, and 
By the knowledge that we have of him, our faith is increased and we learn how to utilize the Spirit's power and the gifts that he gives for daily living and the service of the church. Now, rather than go all the way back through this outline, most of you have been right here with us the whole time, I want to just break in uh, where we left off last time. If you've missed some or all of the study, most of you haven't, but your listening sheet looks a little bit strange. Uh, We're starting with uh, D and D5, which is part of our third major point. The Holy Spirit is God's agent. And by agent, we mean that he is the active member of the Godhead who is working in the world today. Uh, We discussed that he is the agent of creation. He is the agent in the ministry of Christ. He was the agent in the ministry of the canon that is, the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. And personally, and important for you and me, for God's people, as that he works directly in us as the agent of the ministry of the Christian. Now, in this part of the series, we're concerning ways that the Holy Spirit works directly in our lives, enabling us to serve God. And under this subtopic, we've approached four different areas. We've talked about regeneration, sanctification, glorification, Last week was communication. So there's much that's gone on in these sermons. And today I want to continue another of the ways that the Holy Spirit works. And this will take up all of our time today. So your outline begins with D, the ministry of the Christian. He is the agent in the ministry of the Christian, including those previous discussions of four ministries, regeneration, sanctification, glorification, and communication. Now, fifthly, pursuant to the last discussion of communication in prayer, the Holy Spirit has a ministry of demonstration in the life of believers. Now, if you'll permit me just very briefly, I want to back up just a little bit to last week to communication. I didn't put this scripture on the board or uh, on the outline, but if you want to write it down to refer to James 5.16, which says that the effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And there are two words that stand out in that verse, effectual and righteous. That if you want your prayers to have the effect that they should have, if you want to get the desires of your prayers, the best way to make those prayers effectual, really the only way, is to be a righteous person. A righteous, I would say, first of all, knowing Jesus Christ, that you're righteous when you know him. But I would also say righteousness in your daily living. That if you want prayers answered, don't go to God and pray with sin in your heart, unconfessed sin, and not intending to give up the sins that you've just confessed. So number five is demonstration. And I call this demonstration because the Holy Spirit is not dormant in us. He is always active. He doesn't need to be awakened because God never slumbers or sleeps. And if he's in you by faith, by your faith in Christ, he will, he will give evidence of his presence. And that evidence is the good works of a believer. Now, I hadn't intended to say this, but I'm just thinking of as we go by, that uh, you don't want the other evidence that the Spirit is in your life, that he is there, and that's chastisement. You don't want that. So we're going to stay on the positive side mostly today and say that the good works of a Christian will evidence the Holy Spirit is present in his life. So if you are born again, your faith will produce positive activities for Christ. There are a number of verses that we could go to to talk about this. 1 John chapter 2 is one of them. We just read that chapter. Many, many references that prove this. 
And one of these that you are, I think, very familiar with is the epistle of James. James deals with the justifying evidences, evidences of faith. Now, as you probably know, there are many who say that Paul and James are at odds on the doctrine of justification. They say they, say they disagree, uh, but they don't disagree. They speak of justification from different vantage points. When Paul is dealing with justification, mainly he is uh, coming from the standpoint of the means by which we are justified. And that would be the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. This is the way that we are justified. Whereas when James approaches the subject, he deals with the proof that we have been justified. That that justification did, in fact, happen. Breaking into the middle of James' thought, he writes in James chapter 2 and verse 17, Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. James says that a born-again believer proves his justification by the demonstration of his faith. Now, in true saving faith, the believer has been justified, and he will give evidence of that justification by the good works. This is why James says, show me your faith without your works, I'll show you mine by my works. So we understand by what James is saying, we're not saved by these works, we are proved by these works. And that proof is sanctification of the Holy Spirit. So the Apostle John as well hones in on on one work of the believer that's pointed in particular as an evidence of salvation. And we mark this one very well, that he says in 1 John chapter 4, in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us, because he hath given us, listen, of his spirit. Because he has given us of his spirit. So John says the Christian will show the Holy Spirit dwells in him by the love that he has for God and the love he has for his brothers and sisters in Christ. It is the Holy Spirit who produces this love. It's the Holy Spirit that produces love that is great enough that Jesus said, you must also love your enemies, and you must do good to them. And I, and I would submit to you, and you know this very well, that this is probably the most unnatural thing that we can do, to love someone who is our enemy, to love someone who has done something against us. But rather, the natural thing for us to do is to retaliate, do our best to get back at them, hate our enemies, and you will not love them without supernatural impulses. And those impulses are the evidence of the Spirit in you. You may remember uh, several weeks ago we were studying the issue of worry. And we looked at Luke chapter 12. And in that passage, Jesus taught the disciples reasons why they shouldn't worry. Now, one of his arguments we called an a fortiori argument simply means an argument from the lesser to the greater. So Jesus reasoned this way, lesser to the greater, when he's talking about why you shouldn't worry. He says, if God takes care of birds and flowers that are the lesser of creation, will he not also take care of you that are the greater in his creation? 
Now, we apply that premise here. Jesus says, if we are to love our enemies, how much more true is that we are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ? The point is made in reverse in 1 John 4.20. See if you recognize it. If any man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? So you see it there? You can't claim the superior of loving God whom you can't see if you can't love your brother whom you can see. The latter is a less demanding love. So if you don't get that far, then you certainly can't love God. The brother that you see is a less demanding love than the for God that you can't see. Now we can, we can tie that verse into these previous points about justification and sanctification that if love is not apparent in a Christian's life, he is not truly justified, nor is he sanctified. And if neither of those, he can't truly be a Christian. There is no proof the Holy Spirit is dwelling in him because the Holy Spirit demonstrates his presence by the outworking of the believer's faith. Now, I can say that in another way, described by Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, Paul's encouragement is for a demonstration of the faith that is in you by living the faith that is in you. And the only way that you can get out of your life is by God, or get out the faith that's in your life, by God working that faith out of your life to do what he wills and those things which please him. And that working out is the demonstration that God's truly in you. Now we think for a moment about these good works that that God uh, displays or the Holy Spirit demonstrates. There are a couple of purposes for those good works, main purposes. One is for your benefit, and the other is for the benefit of others. Well, how does it benefit you? Well, in a, in a most marvelous, gracious way, that it is evidence for you, yourself, that you know Christ, that you are truly in the faith. And how many of us get discouraged and think, does God care about me? Does God know me? Uh, I doubt my faith. How many of us get into that situation? I think all of us have a time or another. But we look at how God has worked out and, and how we have produced those good works that the Bible says. And that gives us evidence that we truly are the people of God. It says faith is genuine. Now still put in another way, if the Holy Spirit is in you, he will leave tracks in your life where he has been. When the Holy Spirit is present, he leaves his mark. So he can't pass through your life without disturbing the landscape. He can't be a, a part of you without leaving his footprints behind in your life. Do you understand this? I mean, here, here's the way, I love the way that this is put in John. A fourth way to delineate the, the works or the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. John describes it in that aforementioned era that we spoke of regeneration. And it's in this familiar passage uh, uh, where he has a discussion with Nicodemus. And he says in John 3, 8, you know this, the, this passage, the wind bloweth where it listeth, where it wants to, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth, so is every one that is born of the Spirit. Now, he compares the Spirit to wind. 
You can't see the wind, but you can see its effects. When the wind blows, the leaves rustle. When the wind blows harder, a tree blows over. Still harder, and a tornado develops. And none of that do you ever see the wind. But what you do see is the effects of the wind. And so similarly, Jesus tells us the Holy Spirit's work is unseen, but the effects of his presence never are. So spirit-led Christians have, have the effects of the Spirit demonstrated in their lives. Now, this may, may leave me as a pastor with a dilemma from time to time because I wonder about some Christians. And I wonder why is their rebellion against what the Bible says. Now, this is one of those points that I'll make here that may be better for somebody who's not even here. Hopefully they get to hear it uh, on a podcast or video whenever that goes up. But I hope that they do get this. Uh, But I wonder about Christians who are in rebellion about what God's Word says. Now, we point out what the Word says. That's what I'm here for. And I'm not speaking about certain deep theological issues. I'm talking now about the very basic things of being a Christian, the things you should know at first when you come to Christ. I mean, why do pastors, and some are, need to be very cautious preaching against sin? And why is there almost a devilish, rebellious attitude against the moral and the ethical code of our Christianity? Oh, we expect that from the world, don't we? Jesus said that's the way the world will be. That's what Paul said. Christianity and the faith are perceived as being hateful and bigoted. It is racist and homophobic. It is, it is intolerant. And it does reflect Paul's comment that the world is hostile to Christ. And so we wonder why do Christians, some, show the same hostility? And they will not listen to good advice that's given by the pastor or by other Christians that may observe what they do. They won't listen to things that are taken directly from God's word about how we should live. And so must I must I constantly speak on something like sexual morality? Do I need to preach continually on that? Must I explain, for instance, that that living together without marriage is a deep, a deep offense against God? My wife and I were just talking about this yesterday, how it's hard to find young couples anymore that haven't had that experience, haven't experimented with that, living together before marriage. And if you look at the Word of God and things that are at the very top of the list of sins, what always comes up? The sexual sins. They're at the top of almost every list. And so adultery, living together before marriage, fornication, that is a deep offense against God. So I look at those attitudes and I wonder, where is the Holy Spirit? Have you even heard there is a Holy Spirit? And let me just touch on that again because it does bother me so badly. Is that this is not preached against in most of the churches that you will go into. You won't hear anything about this. It goes on all the time. Nobody's going to say anything about it. Because so much of the congregation is living exactly this way. Well, I wonder then, must the preacher go around and watch every move that you make, follow you around, hit you upside the head with a rule book so that you know what you're supposed to do? And what the Word of God says, that when you become a Christian, you should have enough good sense to do what's right. The Holy Spirit is your instructor, and we'll see it in just a minute. So what do you think the Holy Spirit's work is? Do you ignore Him? Or are you like the disciples in Acts 19? Duh! We haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. 
Well, maybe we need to take notes here. I don't often rehearse these issues, but if you want to know how a pastor spends much of his time, you've just found out. There's much agonizing over this issue of why we keep preaching the doctrines of the faith and we speak these things about the Holy Spirit, about Jesus Christ, what He's done for us in His death, the great price that He paid for our sins. We speak of all of this and it does not produce changes in the lives of Christians. It's something wrong with it. There is something wrong with the picture. Well, we observe the way that the Apostle Paul wrote his letters to the churches. He delivers strong doctrine that is intended to make a study, make us think and get to the bottom of the issues. And then when he's made his point about the doctrine, he follows that up with the practical uh, implications and the applications of what he's taught. And if there are changes needed, he expects the doctrine will make the changes. Now, in Romans, we have two great verses that, that open the 12th chapter. These verses come after Paul has delivered some of the most comprehensive theological arguments on the Christian faith that are found in Scripture. Many of you have probably heard, if you know the book of Romans, you have a good grip on the Christian faith. So he's, and it comes to chapter 12, he finishes chapter 11, then just, just suddenly he burst out of that theological cocoon, and he says this in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore... Brethren, or I implore you by what you've just been taught, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be ye not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I think he could well say, what has the Holy Spirit taught you? By what I've just said to you in all these previous chapters, what has the Holy Spirit taught you? What is the demonstration then that you have the Holy Spirit in you? And here it is. He describes it. The Holy Spirit is in you because you make your bodies a living sacrifice. Now you can do that. You're not hanging around there on the, on the outside or on the edges trying to hold on to the world with one hand and God with the other. You are at the center of God's will because the Holy Spirit is your teacher to put you in that position. Peter used the same method. He gives strong doctrine, then he follows it with practical implications. Now, one scripture that comes to my mind when I was, uh, did come to my mind in, in uh, doing this message is 2 Peter chapter 3. There he's speaking of the coming of Christ. He talks about the destruction of the world. And in 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse number 10, he says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now, verse 11, he says, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation that your way of life and godliness looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. Consider the doctrine, see the results, holy living. And then the Apostle John uses the same method. Uh, we'll turn to First John chapter 2. We read this moments ago. I want you to see how John says the Holy Spirit is the teacher the teacher that brings change to your life. Now, if you look at verse 26 in chapter 2, 1 John, 
He says, These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you. And listen, you need not that any man teach you. Now, folks, the anointing that he's speaking of is not a bottle of oil that's poured on you. The anointing is the Holy Spirit himself. John says there are things that you don't need men. You don't need men to teach you. These are things you know. And you need not that any man teach you, but it's the same anointing of the Holy Spirit teaches you of all things and it's truth and is no lie. And even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. So I ask again, do, do you, does a saved person, born-again believer, really need a pastor to ride in the back seat? Do you need a pastor behind you all the time, pushing you, and say, do this, don't do that. Why do I need to be your nanny? Are you saved? Do you have the Holy Spirit? Well, if so, then here's what should happen, verse 28. Now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, listen, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. What does the Holy Spirit do? He teaches you the anointing. The Holy Spirit teaches you. It's expected that you know these things because his presence is demonstrated. And Paul says this still another way in his first letter to the Thessalonians, in verse number 9 of chapter 4. But it's touching brotherly love. Ye need not that I write unto you. For ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. In other words, when you get saved, this becomes a part of you. This is now your new way. This is now your natural godly way. Before, you couldn't do this, but if the Holy Spirit's in you, you can and you should. Now, there are so many ways that that we make the same point. Love is the premier demonstration of the Holy Spirit's presence in you, and the reason that it is is because it's the most difficult to do. You can do all the lesser things. Love is one of the hardest ones to, to do in the right way. You can't do it without the Spirit. Without Him, you do not know and you don't have true love. Now, going back to what I was talking about a moment ago, about these issues of sexual immorality and so on, adultery, true love will not cause you to sin against another person in adultery. You know, you hear people all the time, maybe you see it on TV or whatever, you know, I just got to have this person, I got to forget my spouse, I got to forget my husband or my wife or whatever, I got to go find this person, I need that, I love them so much, and so I'm going to have an affair. That is not love. We, we all know what that is. That's lust. It's not love. The, that, that's not biblical love. You don't understand love until you know Christ. You can't know it until you know Christ. All you can know is a perverted love that provides no proof at all that you are a Christian. So the love of Christ will not permit you... Oh, you can commit the sin and be a Christian. Oh, that is true. But the love of Christ will not permit you to stay in that sin. And neither... Will it prevent you, or should other Christians prevent you from honestly correcting them or you being corrected when you're in the, in the grip of these sins or others like them? Maybe something like the gender dysphoria that everybody's claiming now. So many experience. Shouldn't be afraid to approach somebody on that subject because we have the Word of God. Now, hope you got all that. It may be a while before we get to it again. So how many of you would walk away from today's service and say, what do I do now? 
What do I do now? Well, I've just given you a small glimpse of the work of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's life. What you do now is sacrifice your life for the one who sacrificed his for you. That is a simple thing that, well, it's not a simple thing to do, but it's a simple solution. Just follow the word of God. So the, uh, the Spirit demonstrates his presence through a changed lifestyle. Now, you've heard all this this morning. And now you're going to be surprised to hear me say, that's not even what I want to talk about today. The point I really want to make is about the special gifting of the Holy Spirit. He demonstrates his presence by giving Christians spiritual gifts. And that's where I really want to concentrate on, not things in general, but, but uh, spiritual gifts that the, that the Spirit gives for your work as a Christian. So we're going to take the rest of our time to talk about spiritual gifts. Now, it's necessary to discuss this because there's another, this is another area of the Spirit's work that is subject to much misinformation. Wayne Grudem points out in his systematic theology that in years gone by, systematic theologies did not even contain a chapter on spiritual gifts. And in reading Grudem, I would say, I wish that he understood the gifts a little better because he's not a cessationist. And that means that he doesn't believe the extraordinary gifts of the New Testament era have ceased. But he does point out that since the rise of Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement in the 20th century, that there has been much emphasis placed on spiritual gifts. And I would say, yes, there is inordinate attention given them. There is incorrect understanding of them. And so I, I intend to do a message on the charismatic gifts. That will be in another part of the study. But in this message, I, I'm not so much want to talk about the gifts that had ceased. I want to talk to you about gifts that we still have because they uh, are not used often by Christians who just ignore what the Spirit gives them. So let me start this section by giving you a definition of spiritual gifts. What are they? Well, spiritual gifts, that is any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in the service of the church. Spiritual gifts are God-given abilities. They are not self-generated. They are used especially in the service of the church. Now, I don't necessarily mean a church service like we're having today, even though they're used there as well. That's included. But rather, I mean service in the ministry of the church as you go through your life. Spiritual gift is used to edify the body of Christ. Now, we also do need to understand that spiritual gifts are not the same as natural talents. We have people in our church that have natural talents. Um, maybe you need to tell me what yours is, but uh, I can look at natural talents. I see, uh, well, I don't see Melissa over there, uh, probably outside helping, uh, and, and Alexander, great natural talents, a musician. Some of you sing, you know, really, really well, and we're happy for that. It, it seems like a far distant memory to us now, but um, we used to have a youth choir, and the ladies that directed the youth choir cultivated the natural talents of the children. They, they taught them to harness their voices, how they could use them to be like little songbirds. And you may remember, if, you're, if you've been here this long, uh, that, or that, long that, that some of these children were very, very young. I mean, they hadn't yet... Uh, had uh, come to an understanding of professing faith in Christ. 
And some would say, well, is that wrong for them to sing, to join in the, in that youth choir? And I would say no, because that's part of the training that we give. It's part of bringing them to the faith through, through the songs that they sing, through being here to hear the messages that we preach, and then their Sunday school classes, whatever it might be, the love the instructors give them. That's all part of the package of bringing children to Christ. So would you say then that these young children had spiritual gifts? And I would say no, that is not a spiritual gift because very simply, they didn't have the Spirit in them yet. They haven't professed faith in Christ yet. But they sang like little songbirds, and that was the development of their natural talents. So a spiritual gift is not something that you're born with. It didn't come from your parents. And there are many people talented at, at, at many things, and they have natural gifts, but they're not spiritual gifts. A natural gift can be used anywhere. It doesn't make any difference if you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. Uh, you can use natural talents in a Christian setting, and God may take a natural talent and develop that into a spiritual gift of some kind. That can, that can happen. But a spiritual gift is, is different than natural talent. These are given by God apart from natural abilities. They're given to you at conversion or in consequence of conversion, and they're directed toward the benefit of the Lord's church. In other words, the gift that is given is not specifically for the individual. It's for the rest of us, for the rest of us that are part of the Lord's church, the corporate body. Now, if you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 4, we can see some spiritual gifts that God gives and the purpose of them. Paul writes in the 11th verse of Ephesians chapter 4, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Uh, I, I just uh, Every time I read this, I have to just make mention of just one thing, and that's the comma, the first comma in verse number 12. Compare this to other versions, and you'll see that just the removal of a comma can change the meaning of verse. And I'm not going to get into that today. You can just inspect it a little bit and see what I'm talking about. But what we have here in, in Ephesians chapter 4 is... list of gifts, but you, you can see that the church has given apostles. We no longer have them. That is, we don't have apostles today with the same calling as the original apostles. In fact, uh, as, a, as, a, as Baptists, we, re, we reject the use of the word apostle because of confusion. We don't want anybody to be confused that we have apostles today. Then there's the gift of prophecy. We don't have that any longer because the prophets receive direct revelation from God as they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we now have the complete canon of Scripture. There is no more revelation, so we don't need prophets to give them to us. But these others, evangelists, pastors, teachers, these are people that are specially gifted by God for those types of service. Now, a pastor, for instance is not born with the gift of pastoring a church. And if you were born with it, you can trust me on this, you'd say, God, why me? Why me? Uh, that's what we think sometimes. Uh, he may be a born administrator. He may be a born leader of men. But that doesn't qualify him to be a pastor. God must call a pastor with a direct call. And that must be corroborated by the church. I think that preaching in general is, is a calling, that that is a gift from God. 
A few years ago, uh, I was in Kentucky before Thanksgiving. I was preaching at my old church. And after the service, a man that was new in the church, one I had not met before, he came up to me after the sermon. He said, I really want to preach. But he said, the pastor told me I am not called to preach. And I know why the pastor said that. Because when you hear some men preach, you can say, trust me, you are not called to preach. And, and Charles Spurgeon talked about this with his pastor's, his pastor's school, his college. He said some of the men you know, that were aspiring to be preachers, he said, do something else. You're not called to preach. Well, why, the reason we say that is the church is able to recognize the calling too. Now, here in Ephesians 4, we don't have a complete list of spiritual gifts. There are gifts like ministering, there's exhortation, there's giving and hospitality and mercy. God can put it into a person's heart to gift them with extraordinary kindness, with gentleness, with the ability to handle bad situations with grace and compassion. I wish I had more of that. Uh, Here's an interesting one. Uh, If you just flip a few pages over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in this chapter... Paul's speaking about marriage, and he also talked about being single. Uh, He was unmarried, and he spoke of how a husband and a wife should not withhold their bodies from one uh, from each other, and that's that's as far as we'll go with that. But he also said something interesting in verse number seven. In verse number seven, and and this is a scripture I used in in Kyle's ordination a few months ago uh, in explaining why a a deacon doesn't necessarily have to be married. But 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 7, for I would that all men, Paul says, I would that all men were even as I myself. But every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner, another after that. I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. Now that's interesting to me because Paul called the ability for a man or a woman to remain unmarried, to be single, he said that is a gift from God. Nobody has... Not everybody has that gift, and having it's not bad. Not having it is not bad, because if every Christian remained unmarried, we wouldn't have another generation of Christians. Uh, right very close to where I lived in Kentucky, only made 20 miles south of me, there was a community of people in the 18th and 19th centuries that are called the Shakers. And the Shakers did not believe in marriage. Uh, they separated the men and the women. Their homes had a door for men and a door for women. The church had a door for the men and a door for the women. I won't comment on that, but they had these separate doors for each. They didn't get married. So what do you think happened to the shakers? Well, they're not shaking anymore because there aren't any more. So we don't have those anymore. We, we've got to have children. So Paul wasn't married, but I, I, my opinion is that he had a special gift from God to remain that way without sinning through the natural impulses that are involved in being around the opposite sex. And I think that was necessary for Paul, because you think for a moment, one failure of Paul uh, deauthorizes and takes away the authority to speak on all these sexual issues that he speaks of. So he remained unmarried. I think God gave him a gift to stay that way. But there are several passages in the New Testament that deal with different gifts. You can look at 1 Corinthians 12. If we read Ephesians 4. You'll find some in Romans 12. Uh, and we're going to look here just a, a moment here at, at 1 Corinthians 12 as we make a couple of three points as we finish up today. Now, notice this then, that spiritual gifts, how do we get these? Well, spiritual gifts are, first of all, distributed by the will of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. 
For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of gifts, to another divers kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues, but all these work at that one and self same Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. And then the 18th verse, but now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. You know why the Holy Spirit does not let you choose your gift? One is because of conflict. Now, I talked about going back to Kentucky to preach. Every time that I'd go back there, I'd be a little bit nervous when I preached. And this was because the church was filled with preachers. There were six or seven former pastors that were members of the church. I don't think they have as many now. But I would go back to preach, and when I stood in the pulpit, I always thought, well, I'm being graded. All these preachers out there, you know, they're going to give me a mark on whether that sermon was any good or not. They're going to tell me afterwards. Well, they were all very gracious. I'm thankful for that. Perhaps, I think, six preachers the last time was there. But we noticed there was only one man that was called to pastor the church. Those other six were not the pastors of the church. Now, God did not tell you to pastor this church. He knows what the church needs. He knows that if everybody was the pastor, we would have chaos. We'd be going in all different kinds of directions. Some of you think that you know more than me. And I admit, probably some of you do. But you don't know as much as I know about pastoring this church because God didn't call you for it or gift you for this body. The Holy Spirit chooses the gift for you because he knows what the church needs and he knows what he can use for the benefit of others. So no one should, should look at another person's gift and be envious. Use the gift that God gave you and just think how blessed you are that God chose it for you. And then let me say this in passing. I'm not a fan of spiritual gift tests. Some churches have a form that you fill out, and that determines your gift. I mean, it's almost like having a standardized test where you get one of those uh, computer cards, you fill in the dot, they run it through the computer, and out spits your, your spiritual gift. I think I told you this before. Years ago, I said, if that's the way that God did it, then we would have a book of forms in our Bible. First, second, third, John, Jude, Revelation, and then we would find forms. Form number SGD 1040 that says spiritual gifts determination form. I don't think you learn your gift that way. If the Holy Spirit can give gifts, he can tell you what your gift is. He can make that known to you. You may not recognize it on one day, day one that you get saved. It may take a while for it to be developed. It's cultivated over time. It becomes useful in time. And that means that in the meantime, what you should do is get busy. You should be active. You can't sit down and watch what everybody else does. No, we climb in the ministry and we help in whatever way we can. I mean, you've got ladies over there in the kitchen probably right now. They're ministering. We'll be ministering to you very shortly as we sit down to eat. Just help anywhere that you can. Help with the common tasks. Then your gift will begin to rise to the top. I'll give you an example of this. In Acts chapter 6, I was talking about deacons a moment ago. There are the selection in that chapter First part of that chapter, the selection of the first deacons for the church. How were those deacons chosen? Well, one day, there were seven men who showed up on the apostles' doorstep and said, we think we ought to be deacons. 
No, you know that's not what happened. The apostles said to the people, find seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, and we will appoint them, or you will appoint them, over the business of ministry. Now, the men chosen, obviously, must have already been actively demonstrating Christian graces. They were already involved with good stewardship. They were responsible. They perhaps were likable. And the people helped to identify that gift. Now, next, number two, spiritual gifts are distributed to all believers. And that's important to recognize because I've made the point that every Christian will have a demonstration of the Spirit's presence in his life. And I think that means more than just being a good church member, just showing up and generally acting like an all-around good person. That's great. That's great. You should. Uh, But you have a gift. You, You may even have more than one gift. I would say you don't have all the gifts. God didn't give anybody all the gifts or else we would only need one member. That would be you. And uh, I'm happy that there are other people that have gifts because if I had all the gifts, I would be busier than a one-armed paper hanger. It'd be a very busy thing around here. Now, if you're a Christian who hangs out at the church, and that's, that's just what you do, well, you're neglecting the gift that God gave you. God brought you to the church to be used for some purpose, so be ready to help sooner or later your gift will become apparent. Now, thirdly, I know you want to get done here, so we look at number three. Spiritual gifts are distributed as needed. We read Ephesians 4 a moment ago. I said, no apostles today. We have no prophets today. We don't need apostles and prophets. Those gifts have run their course. The church can do without them. So not needing those, we don't have them. The miracle gifts of healing, speaking in tongues, They're also gone. We don't need those today. The purpose has been fulfilled. God used them in the time and place they were needed. There are also churches that may not have a need for a particular spiritual gift. The Holy Spirit knows when that gift is needed, and he distributes them as they are needed. He gives and empowers for them, and he can raise a person at the time that he needs it and give that person that gift. Now, we we could spend much time in this area... I said we will come back to miracle gifts. We'll dedicate a sermon to that. Uh, but that, when we talk about gifts, those, those are the, that's the first thing that pops into people's minds. Oh, you must be talking about speaking in tongues. You, you must be talking about going to a Benny Hinn healing ceremony, healing service or whatever. That must be what you're talking about. No, that's not what I'm talking about. We need explanation of those gifts because there is so much focus on them. There's wild, aberrant doctrine, and the Holy Spirit is blasphemed, in fact, by those things. And so you might ask them, well, if that's not it, what is the point? What is the chief point of today's message? Well, the chief point is that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit will make your profession known to you and to others. Your good works will show that you have been justified by faith. Your holy living, your obedience to Christ, shows that the Holy Spirit is in you and that you are being sanctified. Now, quite frankly, some church members have difficulty proving they are Christians because they don't show much evidence. They haven't yielded all areas of their lives to Christ. Bad habits, things that they're doing day by day, is just shredding, tearing apart that testimony. Then some of you might be sitting on your gift. I don't really have doubts that you're Christians because you're pleasant, you're cooperative, you listen, you show interest. I would just say you'd be much happier 
in the spiritual life and just get busy and make positive contributions to the ministry. So don't leave the proof behind by bad demonstrations, and I mean wrong spiritual activity, and I also mean the lack of good spiritual activity. Not demonstrating properly leaves the impression, I didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Now, we don't want to be Acts 19 disciples. We let Jesus and Peter and Paul, James and John explain things to us. Show your faith by a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Now, then, if you are a Romans 12 Christian, it'll help you never to be in doubt about your identity in Christ. Additionally, you help others receive the benefits of of your work for the Savior. Now, just quickly, let me emphasize this, that the church does benefit. Our entire church benefits by people using the gifts of the Spirit. You're expected to use them because through them, the church is being sanctified. The church has helped. Now, in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, Paul had the corporate church body in mind as he warned the Corinthians of ways that they hurt the church. And from there, he continues on. There's several chapters there in between. He gets to chapter 12, we read just a moment ago, and there he's talking about how the church had misused the gifts that he had. But he does say this in the third chapter, verse 16, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Now, I think in that verse that Paul is talking about the entire corporate body. We, are, we have the Spirit in us individually, but that Spirit works for us corporately as the body of Christ. So, you'll hurt the church if you don't earnestly live for Christ and use the gifts that God gives to others that are sanctified in the Spirit. So, if you are indeed holy, I think Scripture proves to us that you, your gifts, your salvation, your faith in Christ will be demonstrated. Blessed be God for the gifts of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come uh, to your house today to look into your Word. And we know, Father, that uh, this is a serious concern as We see the world becoming more wicked every day. Um, I regularly receive letters from our church members, emails that talk about how wicked the world is and how difficult it is to live the Christian life. We know this. uh, There's so much trouble. But we do have the power of the Spirit. And we're not discouraged. We're not cast down. We're not destroyed, as Paul says, even though we may experience persecution, may experience things even worse. Yet we know we have Christ and we have the Holy Spirit in us. I just pray, Father, that you would speak to our people today and what's been said will be a help that we'll all concern ourselves with the work that you've given us to do, that in our daily lives, that we would show that we are Christians and by our faith that others will question the hope that is in us. They will ask, why do you do this? Why do you live like this? And open up the opportunities to share the gospel. Thank you, Lord. Be with our people today. Bless this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Groner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at 
www.bebaptist.org.